0: Today's episode is brought to you by Clutch. Clutch is a new credit card revolutionizing how you earn and spend points. If you feel you're not maximizing your credit card points, you are not alone. Clutch created a tailored credit card that gives you rewards that are effortless, relevant, and flexible. Right now, Clutch is offering our listeners a special invitation code to get on their waitlist by using the code POD at clutchcard.com. That's code POD at K L U T C H C A R D.com. Choose your own categories and earn more points with Clutch. History can be viewed through many different lenses. Some believe that history is a long conversation about philosophy, and some believe it is focused on politics or wars between great characters featured throughout history. However, the Kitchen Survival Guide takes a bit of a different lens to the ancient civilizations. Food. The history of food encompasses multiple aspects philosophy, anthropology, sociology, politics, economics, resources, geography, and obviously a very strong focus on culture. But food throughout history tended to rely more on the neglected populations throughout history like women, slaves, and indigenous populations, and it still does in many parts of the world to this day. Just as the Tigris and Euphrates rivers shaped the agricultural society of ancient Mesopotamia, the Nile shaped the world of the ancient Egyptians, who existed from about 3000 BCE to 300 BCE. The Nile is the longest river in the world, and it's kind of odd because it flows from the south up to its northern headwaters, which kind of empty into this delta at the Mediterranean Sea. The Nile River is 6,650 kilometers long and provided ancient Egyptians with drinking water, water for irrigation of crops, and fish like mullet, carp, sturgeon, catfish, and tilapia. Amidst otherwise arid climates between the Sahara and the Arabian desert on either side of the Nile, the river was considered the giver of life. However, since there was no plumbing in ancient Egypt, the average lifespan of an ancient Egyptian human really only averaged about 40 years old if they got lucky, and much of it could have been due to the fact that the Nile River was used as a toilet, a shower for irrigation water for crops, and drinking water. Yuck! Not to mention the Nile River was creature-ridden with hungry crocodiles, aggressive hippopotamuses, and other harmful creatures that could lead to an uncertain death during your morning bath or quick swim. Since the ancient Egyptian diet wasn't centered on meat, but rather cereal grains, these humans made extensive use of the river. There are many pieces of art and hieroglyphs depicting ancient Egyptians fishing with nets and spears and other equipment used for fishing. Aside from the pharaohs, tombs, pyramids, statues, and sculptures, the majority of ancient Egypt was comprised of agrarian cities built along the coast of the Nile River. Each spring, the Nile River underwent an annual flooding. The Egyptians called this season akhet, meaning inundation, which lasted from about mid-June through to mid-October. This flooding would inundate the surrounding lands with four million tons of silt. And the silt caused a buildup of semet, meaning black earth, which was brought down from the mountains by the flooding and it was brought into the valley. It was extremely fertile soil that was very rich in nutrients, allowing for grain cultivation. The season of peret, meaning emergence, was the season for planting seeds. Essentially, the soil became so fertile that farmers really only needed to just scatter seeds by hand and have a bunch of animals walk over them to press them into the ground. The cultivation of grains occurred quickly during the season of shimu, just before the flooding would happen again. Most agricultural societies following ancient Egypt had to rely on very complex forms of irrigation to water their crops. However, the Egyptians were able to use basin irrigation where farmers would use the floodwaters from Akhet to fill these large basins in the ground that were attached to a series of canals that were used to irrigate the crops. Since the Egyptians were able to use these systems to create large food stores, the farmers could focus on farming and the slaves could focus their time and energy on building elaborate, impressive projects for royalty. When the farming season ended and the floods were about to happen again, the farmers were actually required by law to work on constructing buildings or other monuments for the pharaoh until the flooding season ended. In the rations given to the laborers who built the pyramids, they would often receive things like lentils. Farmers planted seeds from October to the end of February, scattering wheat and barley seeds by hand, followed by herds of goats being sent to stomp the field and get the seeds into the soil to keep them safe from hungry birds prior to germination. Similar to the Mesopotamians, Egyptians employed irrigation techniques, but it was possible for the water to stagnate and attract mosquitoes and other insects. Mice and rats would chew or burrow their way into silos containing farmers' grain stores so cats were domesticated and worshipped in ancient Egypt since they kept the rodent population at bay, contributing to a successful harvest. If you've seen the new Netflix special that was released recently, it's called Secrets of the Saqqara Tomb, they discovered the first mummified lion. Egyptians loved animals and had a very special relationship with them, and so much so that they were constantly depicted in art, and some gods would even have, you know, animalistic features. There was very much a culture of expressing gratitude and thanks to animals for their contribution as food or for protecting their food stores. The Greeks who traveled to Egypt in later centuries remarked that these people had kinship relationships with their animals and that the animals were welcomed into their homes, which kind of seemed, you know, a little odd to them. Egyptian hunters would use throwing sticks to hunt birds, which was kind of akin to a boomerang that just never really came back again. And it would hit the bird, kill it, and then the pet cats would go and fetch the birds. Depictions of Egyptian geese can also be found in ancient Egyptian artwork. Egyptians relied heavily on preservation of foods in the hot, arid climate. They were also solely dependent on the Nile River, so anything that wasn't really natively grown within this area wasn't a crop that was locally available. Egyptians relied heavily on the use of honey as a source of sugar. Honey has these antibacterial properties and basically it never really spoils, so it was very often used for preservation. Grain, obviously, was the center of the ancient Egyptians' diet, as it was for many ancient peoples, specifically barley, emmer, and rice. Within this ancient civilization, the Egyptians did not eat nearly as much meat as modern Egyptians do, and they were reliant on many vegetables like onions, garlic, lentils, lotus, papyrus, tiger nut, okra, and malachia. Meat was reserved for royalty, wherein the pharaohs were considered a connection to the gods. And tiger nuts are actually not nuts at all, but they're a small tuber that grows underground, and these were very popular in ancient Egypt as they could be ground into flour. Molokia is a leafy green vegetable with a sliminess that's kind of similar to okra, and it is still eaten in Egypt today. The fruits that were available were anything really that could be grown in a Mediterranean or a Middle Eastern climate like dates, figs, grapes, melons, cucumbers, and carob. They also actually had watermelons, but their ancient version was much smaller and more bitter than the melons that we have today. Egyptians did make wine, but not to the extent that they made beer. The wine was mostly only available for the wealthy, whereas beer was reserved for the farmers and slaves. The ancient Egyptians used a variety of spices such as coriander, nigella, sumac, asafoetida, and sesame. They also had poultry and eggs such as chicken, quail, pigeon, and waterfowl. There are records that the ancient Egyptians had somehow discovered at what temperature chicken eggs hatched. And uh, they had invented this like pseudo mass incubator with fires in the ground and a room on top that was just at the right temperature for eggs to hatch and then they were able to hatch hundreds of chicken eggs at a time. And catfish from the river was also popular but beef, sheep, goat, and small critters were typically reserved for royalty. Since the Nile River was the giver of life, the ancient Egyptians built their calendar entirely surrounding the river's cycles. The cycle of life, death, and rebirth was also connected to the waterway. For Egyptians to prove that they had not violated any of the laws associated with their acceptance into the afterlife, they would make a negative confession wherein their heart could be weighed against a feather on judgment day to determine if a person's heart was heavy with sin. Many of these laws had to do with food and farming, like the mistreatment of cattle, negatively impacting the food stores of the temples, stealing bread from the deceased, stealing milk from children, or building a dam preventing the flow of water. Since pharaohs were seen as this kind of bridge between humans, the gods, and the afterlife, the pharaoh was considered the ruler of the Nile and the giver of life. A pharaoh was also expected to act like the Nile River by displaying abundance, fertility, and a state of calm. Since ancient Egyptians equated the pharaoh to this river, they expected that after death, the pharaoh would reappear, as in this period of inundation and flooding that would happen annually. In order for a pharaoh to continue his ruling in the afterlife, he required an impressive tomb and his body. (laughs) The first pyramid that was constructed as a tomb for a pharaoh was built in 3,500 BCE, and it is possible that mammoths still existed at this point in time, which is really cool to think about. The pyramids were the tallest buildings in the world for approximately 3,800 years and are the last remaining of the ancient seven wonders of the world. And with their polished exterior layer of limestone, it's said that the pyramids could have probably been seen by space. So um, the aliens had their opportunity. They're not coming, sorry to break it to you. And a Pharaoh's crook, which is seen in a lot of um, depictions of Pharaohs in hieroglyphs and things like that within tombs. And it's a symbol that's seen quite often in ancient Egyptian art, and it is meant to depict that the pharaoh is a shepherd of the people. And we will be right back after this quick break. Epicure is a Canadian company that provides spices, meal solutions, and cookware. As an independent Epicure consultant, our mission is to put good food made with clean ingredients on everyone's table. All spices and meal solutions are made with natural and organic ingredients and real Canadian grown dehydrated spices, fruits, and vegetables. Everything is gluten-free and nut-free, low sodium, kosher, and made with no processed ingredients. Epicure helps time-starved families bring healthy, affordable meals to the table from raw to ready in 20 minutes or less. You can help yourself to some delicious meal solutions and spices at savorfood.ca. That's S A V O U R F O O D.ca. The other way to determine what ancient Egyptians ate was through the art depicted in their tombs. The time of ancient Egyptian culture actually lasted for about 2,500 years. And since these humans truly appreciated and kind of just followed the status quo, most of their culture actually remained the same throughout all those years. And since the Nile River flows through Egypt, the one thing that really hasn't changed nowadays is that Egyptians in ancient times and today live along the Nile. Many tombs also depict the eating customs of the ancient Egyptians. Art often depicts dancers and forms of music or other sorts of live entertainment during dining. The diners would sit on benches or on the floor and they didn't have utensils to eat with, but they did have very strict rules of etiquette at banquets, which was also depicted by their clothes and their jewelry. In the early years of ancient Egypt, royalty dined on a mat or cushions around low tables and the food was eaten without utensils. But later on, chairs and regular tables came into play. The servants of the royalty were required to bring the food and there was a separate room for cooking. kitchen of sorts. However, the farmers and slaves were subjected to very different eating habits and diets than royalty. Priests were ordered to prepare three banquets each day, and each banquet would be overflowing with meats, wine, and cakes. There are many tombs that also depict Egyptians harvesting grains and cultivating crops. Although ancient Egyptians might seem kind of obsessed with death, they actually just really loved and appreciated life, and they wanted it to continue in their afterlife. Egyptologists have gathered this through ancient writings. The Egyptians were a literate society with two forms of writings, so they have their hieroglyphs, which were used for sacred writing, and demotic script for writing contracts and agreements. According to Andrew Coletti, author of Past the Flamingo, since there are not many literary sources on, you know, specifically on ancient Egyptian cuisine, most of these sources actually come from archaeologists who have found mummified or preserved food in tombs. Egyptians were said to have wanted to bring their most precious, earthly belongings with them into the afterlife, so their tombs would be filled with all of the best possible foods to please the gods, and all of the items found would have been the most luxurious foods possible at the time for an ancient Egyptian. to eat. Archaeologists have also found tomb offerings such as mummified meat, dates, bread, and beer. By analyzing the remains of mummified Egyptians, it is also possible to tell what they may have eaten before they died, through the wear on their teeth, and the evidence of possible underlying health conditions related to diet, such as heart disease, diabetes, or obesity. And there is also proof that ancient Egyptians were aware of diabetes or what they called it sugar sickness. To diagnose diabetes the patient would urinate on the ground and they would wait to see if it would attract ants due to the excess sugar in the urine. Ancient Egyptian women had also invented a form of pregnancy test where they would moisten a sample of barley and emmer wheat with their urine every day. And if the barley grew it meant that the woman was pregnant And it was likely going to be a boy. And if the emmer wheat grew, then the woman was pregnant with a girl. If neither grew, the woman wasn't pregnant. And it was actually verified by modern scientists that this practice was fairly effective. And as a form of birth control, women were told to mix crocodile and elephant excrement with honey, dates, or other pleasant smelling substances to put in uh, some creative places. And man, honestly, I did not expect the ancient Egyptian culture to revolve so heavily on weird bodily fluids, but here we are. (laughs) So to preserve the bodies of the dead so that a human spirit could return to his home in the afterlife, ancient Egyptians would salt and dry human bodies. Excerebration was the process of removing the brain from the skull through the nose. In the 5th century BC, Greek writer Herodotus recorded, having agreed on a price, the bearers go away and the workmen left alone in their place and bomb the body. If they do this in a perfect way, they first draw out part of the brain through the nostrils with an iron hook and inject certain drugs into the rest. It is believed that an object made of a plant similar to bamboo, about seven inches long, was used in this process to liquefy and remove the brain. A hole would be punched into the ethmoid bone near the nose, and the stick would be inserted into the hole. Some of the brain would be removed in whole chunks while the rest would liquefy. The deceased would then be rolled onto his stomach to allow the rest of the liquid to drain from the nose. The embalmers would then slice open the torso to remove all of the internal organs and stuff it full of strong spices like myrrh and cinnamon, and then they would sew the body back up. And then for 70 days, the body was preserved in a mineral salt called natron. When the preservation process was done, the salt would be washed off the corpse and the embalmers would wrap it with bandages. This mummification process was typically performed by high priests. Lice could have been considered one of the great plagues of ancient Egypt, you know, along with the locusts and the frogs and whatever else the bible threw at them. You know, lice were everywhere and it really wasn't as simple as it is nowadays to get rid of them with just a shampoo. Lice were such a massive issue that Egyptians would rid themselves of any and all body hair, men and women included, and they would wear wigs as a replacement. Once the lice infested the wigs, they could just easily be thrown away and replaced with a new wig. And since they removed all of their body hair, they were considered pure. To ensure that lice didn't infect the pharaoh during the mummification process, the high priests or servants of the gods were required to have been shaved bald. Because the priests were so involved in this process, they were well versed in human anatomy and they were kind of like a doctor. They were able to set dislocated or broken bones and even perform brain surgery around 2500 BC. The priests would treat wounds using moldy bread and honey, where the high sugar content would draw the moisture out of the cells, killing bacteria. And as discovered by Dr. Alexander Fleming in, in 1928, penicillin is derived from mold. But we're a few millennia from getting to that one. The pharaohs actually tended to be more obese than their depictions in hieroglyphics found within their tombs or sculptures made of themselves. The mummies of these pharaohs were studied by scientists and they often had clogged arteries or giant bellies. And the Egyptians were so well-versed with obesity that they had actually produced medical texts on it as early as 1500 BC. Egyptian nobility would take castor oil, laxatives, three times per month, which did absolutely nothing. (laughs) The obese pharaohs were also required to partake in fertility rituals to ensure the fertility of the land and crops by walking down to the banks of the Nile and um, blessing the river with their baby gravy. And uh, to avoid having to mark this episode as not safe for work, let's cut to a quick break. (laughs) The Kitchen Survival Guide podcast requires a lot of research, time, and production. To help support the Kitchen Survival Guide, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. This is a monthly membership as low as $3 per month that, cumulatively, can help us to continue to produce new episodes. Some of the membership perks include bonus content, access to our private Discord channel, early access to episodes, complete archives of all the research done for these episodes, shoutouts, behind the scenes, and more. You can subscribe at patreon.com. Backslash KSG podcast. Society was built into three classes the nobility, a class of nepotism, royal families, and a fair amount of incest, pharaohs with multiple wives, and an abundance of children. And <laughs> Then you had the farmers or working class who owned farmlands or rented farmlands from royalty near the Nile River to survive during the flooding season. And when they couldn't farm during the flooding, They would labor on the pyramids or tombs to pay their way in society. And then there were the slaves who tended to royalty. They would feed them, bathe them, dress the pharaohs, prepare their meals, fan them on hot days, and carry them around on sedans. And many slaves also dedicated their lives to building sculptures, statues, pyramids, or other kinds of tombs for the nobility. In ancient society, slavery tended to just Kind of be an instance of really bad luck and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. If the country or city you were living in lost war, the people of that society were considered the property of those who won the war. And this is how the Jews became slaves to the ancient Egyptians. Since the Jews practiced monotheism or the belief of a singular god, the Egyptians looked down on their religion. The religion of ancient Egyptians and their gods were connected to the Nile River, making them polytheistic where a religion tends to be attached to sacred places or natural resources. As the story goes, if you've ever watched the beloved's kids movie, The Prince of Egypt, <laughs> Moses, a Jewish servant, approaches the Pharaoh demanding that his people be freed. The Pharaoh refused, so the Jews prayed to God for freedom, which was received by plagues that were intended to specifically target the Egyptians to save the Hebrews. Doesn't really mention the whole lice plague, but you know, everyone in the movie is already hairless, so clearly they needed more plagues. God made the Nile turn to blood so that the fish died and the water was undrinkable, God infested the lands with frogs that in turn infested the ovens and the kneading bowls. He sent infestations of gnats and flies. The livestock of the Egyptians began dying, but the animals of the Hebrews lived. Humans and animals became covered with sores and God made it hail so that all the vegetation would die. The locusts were then sent to eat any remaining crops and Egypt was made a land of darkness for three days without sun. But the final act of God was the Passover, where the angel of death was sent to kill the firstborn son of every home if the Pharaoh did not concede and free the Hebrews. When the Jews finally gained their freedom, Moses led the people to Canaan, the land of milk and honey, foods representing an abundant and fertile land after parting the Red Sea. Very, very credible source on that one too, you know, referencing a a kid's movie, but I mean, there's also like the Old Testament from the Bible, I guess too. Anyway, to prevent their firstborn sons from being killed by the angel of death, the Jews slaughtered a one-year-old lamb and dipped it in an herb called hyssop in the blood, spreading the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, the lintel, which are the beams above the doors, and as a sign to God that they were faithful Jews and their eldest son should not be taken by the angel of death. The angel of death would see the blood on the door frames and pass over the homes of the Jews, instead taking the firstborn sons of the Egyptians and of their cattle too? Since the angel of death killed the son of the Pharaoh, he let the Jews go free. In a traditional Passover meal, to celebrate their freedom, the Jews would eat a mixture of chopped apples and nuts that represent the bricks that the Israelites were forced to make whilst building the pyramids, horseradish representing the bitterness of slavery, a hard-boiled egg dipped in salt water representing the tears of the slaves, and unleavened bread called matzo because the Jews were led out of Egypt so quickly that there was no time to wait for the bread to leaven. The matzo is eaten for seven days. Easter is also a Christian holiday that is linked to Passover. However, historically, Moses and his people probably didn't exist in the times of building the pyramids, as most of them were constructed during the Old Kingdom, or the beginning era of ancient Egypt. Egyptians didn't have any coins or money until the influence of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, which we'll talk about that in a future episode. So workers were compensated with bread, beer, and sometimes onions. The wheat and produce grown by farmers was the currency used to barter for other food items at the market. Barley and emmer wheat were the essentials since they were used to make beer and bread and became the basis of the economy. The canals that were built to irrigate crops from the basins needed constant repairs, so a shadiff was invented to lift water from the source to use it for irrigation. It was basically a long pole with a bucket on one end and a counterweight on the other. This way, the farmers could easily gather water from the Nile or the basins to bring it back to the farm. When the crops were ready to be harvested, the wheat could be cut down with sickles and it was tied into bundles. Any remaining wheat stems were used as straw for livestock. The wheat bundles were then loaded into baskets, carried via donkey, to be transported to the local threshing area. And this is where the grain was thrushed or separated from its husk, which was a technology discovered by the ancient Mesopotamians that we talked about in the last episode. This was done by cows, donkeys, or goats, and they were guided over the grain on the ground to walk on it and separate it with their hooves. The wheat would then be separated from the shaft through a process called winnowing, where the wheat is thrown into the air, the heavier grain falls onto the ground, and the chaff blows away in the wind. The wheat was then collected and turned into flour as needed. The flour would be ground with large, heavy stones attached to wooden poles that would grind and roll over top of the wheat. Then, it would be sifted. The rest of the wheat would be stored in those funky-looking dome-shaped silos we mentioned earlier that were protected from rats and mice by ever-sacred cats. Dogs were also useful on the farms for herding livestock from a lot of mummies' teeth. It appears that the bread was very sandy since their teeth seemed to be really ground down, and it also probably contained fragments of rock from the hooves of animals during the threshing or the milling process of grinding down the flour with large stones farmers' houses in ancient Egypt were often made of stone, clay, straw, and mud. Some houses contained an underground storeroom that was used to store food, and it could be accessed through a hatch in the floor. Wood was rare and very expensive, since, you know, there are no forests in the middle of the desert, obviously. And since sanitation was not really understood back then, the bathroom was... Nile River or a pot outside of the house that was then emptied into the Nile River. This obviously contributed to worms and other parasites that these Egyptians were likely infested with, which would invade the bodies of individuals drinking this contaminated water. Having blood in the urine was seen as a sign of fertility and it is very likely that many parasites from contaminated water would play host in these Egyptians' bodies producing blood in the urine lovely more bodily fluids let's take another quick break If you're enjoying this episode so far, please take a minute of your time to subscribe to the Kitchen Survival Guide podcast and leave a rating or review. We would love to hear from you. You can find our full culinary curriculum in the Kitchen Survival Guide Facebook group on Patreon or on our website at ksgpodcast.com. In ancient Egypt, the word for life was also the same word for bread. By this standard, if the Nile was the giver of life, it was also the giver of bread. Aptly named, considering the amount of grain cultivation that happened along the banks of the Nile, food historians believe that the ancient Egyptians may have accidentally made the first instance of leavened bread and probably by accident. Since the bread-making process began by patting grain and water into a flat circle and placing it on a hot rock near the fire, it is possible that yeast made its way onto some dough that had been left laying around or that ale was accidentally combined with flour instead of water. Regardless, the Egyptians had discovered gluten and the bread was able to rise. Archaeologists have uncovered bread that was shaped in all different sizes and varieties, including pyramid-shaped, and commercial bakeries produced a minimum of 40 varieties of pastries and breads. These commercial bakeries were crucial for the feasts the pharaohs held, which could include over 10,000 biscuits, 1,200 Asiatic loaves, hundreds of cuts of meat and offal, as well as geese, cooked ducks, sheep, fish, quails, pigeon milk and cream, carob seeds, lettuce, thousands of grapes and oasis grapes, figs, honeycomb, cucumbers, and leek bulbs. The Egyptians discovered that if you took a piece of fermented dough from the last bread that was made, and it was included in the new batch, it ensured that the new batch of dough would rise. This was the first emergence of what we now know as sourdough bread. Since beer was such an important part of Egyptian culture, they had also discovered that to leaven bread, the head of the beer could be taken off or the bottom of the barrel, so to speak, could be added to the flour doughs. Pharaohs spent their days drinking wine, eating plenty of food, and overseeing the economical, cultural, and political life of Egypt. Royal banquets included goose, bull, and fresh fruits like figs and dates and wine. And only royals were allowed to hunt big game like lions. Since all of the food for royalty was prepared by staff at the temples, hunting was more of a form of entertainment rather than hunting out of necessity. Sometimes game masters would even pre-catch an animal for the pharaoh to kill. It was a chance to showcase strength and power. In the tomb of King Tut, uh, there's actually a drawing depicting him coming back from an ostrich hunt. Tutankhamun was a teenage boy when he passed away, and his tomb was found filled with snacks for the afterlife, because Egyptians believed that you still needed to eat in the afterlife, similar to the beliefs of ancient Mesopotamians and their funeraries that we talked about in the previous episode. Found in Tutankhamun's tomb were preserved bread, wine, pomegranates, green onions, garlic, pitted dates, ribs, poultry, and beef that were pre-cooked, preserved, and packed in sarcophagus- shaped and painted to resemble the food item now i don't know about you but if i was a god or a deity in the afterlife and i saw that someone had a sarcophagus that was shaped like a chicken with a preserved chicken inside i would be pretty impressed Beer was a dietary staple, but Egyptian beer was thick and lumpy and it was drunk with a straw. It had a low alcohol content and could be consumed throughout the day. It was also rationed to the laborers on the pyramids. It can be compared to modern beers that are made today in some African cultures. Every meal would feature a grain product and all meals would also include bread, so wheat was essential for survival. Multiple of those little silos were typically kept on a farm to store the grain. Most ancient Egyptians consumed approximately 3,780 calories per day, almost twice that of what modern humans are supposed to consume on average. Which is now approximately the same amount of calories that the average American eats. But most Egyptians were slim, lean, and athletic because they had a highly active lifestyle and a diet that was rich in variety, full of high quality and natural foods. Beer would be had at almost every single meal. It was stored in large pots, but it did spoil quickly due to the heat. Hops weren't used during this era, so spices and dates were added to the drink to make it a little bit more palatable. Since it had such a low alcohol content in comparison to the beer we drink today, children would often drink the beer as well. Due to the fecal contamination and other waterborne contaminants in the Nile, it was actually safer to drink beer than water. (laughs) The way beer was processed would kill the microorganisms that could prove harmful to the body. Since it took a lot of time and effort to refine the grains and the process, the grains into flour, breads would be coarse and browned and sandy, as we mentioned previously, but it was also eaten at every single meal. I mean, trying to prepare food in the middle of the desert just seems like it would be impossible for it not to be sandy. (laughs) Sand would just blow into food as it was being made, and rock fragments from stone tools used to grind the grains would contaminate the bread. Aside from the contaminated bread, though, the rest of the vegetable selections were great. You'd get onions, lettuce, peas, dates, raisins, apples, and ancient Egyptians actually only ate twice per day, as the farmers spent all day out working in the fields. So they were eating almost 2,000 calories at each meal, which is what we are supposed to consume now in an entire day. So if anything, beer would be sipped throughout the day to replenish the calories burnt working in the fields, and fish or poultry could be hunted throughout the day and would be covered in a range of spices and served for dinner alongside vegetables, beer, and bread. This would follow by a dessert course of honey that was used to make sweetbreads and cakes paired with some fruit. Although ancient Egypt wasn't the first agrarian society, it was by far one of the longest lasting ones and it has taught us a lot about food in ancient times. Without the preserved and mummified foods found in ancient tombs, we may have never learned as much as we have about their people, culture, health and politics. Food has been the one thing that links all humans past and present throughout the entire course of history and it's the basis of our current food cultures all around the world today. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of kitchen survival guide you can find us on instagram twitter and facebook at ksg podcast and can follow along with all of the kitchen survival guide written units modules and show notes in our online kitchen survival guide facebook group or on our website ksgpodcast.com I would also love to hear from you. Mail can be sent to ksgpodcast at gmail.com or you can leave us a voice message to be featured on the podcast through the Anchor FM app. If you like this episode or learn something from it, please subscribe so that you continue to get notified about new episodes or leave a rating or review. Until next time, happy eating.